Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, Climate, Clean Air, and Energy Fellow Caitlin McCoy speaks with Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Eric Lipton about the recent special section of the New York Times chronicling the stories of four U.S. communities facing the effects of the Trump administration's environmental rollbacks. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, this is Caitlin McCoy, the Climate, Clean Air, and Energy Fellow. Today I am joined by Eric Lipton of the New York Times to discuss his recent work on the impacts of environmental deregulation under the Trump administration. Thank you, Eric, for joining us by phone today. Thank you. So Eric Lipton is an investigative reporter for the New York Times based in Washington. He started at the Times in 1999, and he's a three-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting, investigative reporting, and as part of a team for foreign reporting. At the end of December, the Times published your recent investigative journey titled This is Our Reality Now, which takes us across the country from Bakersfield, California, to Thompson's, Texas, to Charleston, West Virginia, and to the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota. In each place, you explore the effects of at least one regulatory rollback that has taken place. And I also want to note that you were joined by Steve Etter and John Branch as your collaborators on some of the sections of the project. And also that Gabriella Demchuk took the stunning photos that accompanied your written work. So we here have been closely following the regulatory changes under the Trump administration, but we've been doing so from a purely legal perspective. So I think I speak for all of us here at the program when I say that it was really moving to read your work, to finally hear directly from people whose everyday lives are being affected by these federal policy decisions that are happening in Washington. So I'd like to start by asking you whether you learned anything that was surprising during your investigation into these issues. Uh, I think, generally speaking, environmental change is quite slow. And what policy decisions are made in Washington, the actual implications for you know people in their daily lives, they don't materialize instantly. And they... Uh, so, you know, m- many, most of the environmental groups have been focused, uh, as, as have the reporters, on the many uh, regulatory proposals that the Trump administration has made. Um, but we've been less focused on trying to identify actual changes in, you know, the quality of life of individual communities. And that's a lot harder to find, and that's because, you know, environmental change is slow. And I think that that was one of the things that was really evident to me as we looked through the dozens of different regulatory proposals that have been made actually identifying places of real impact was was harder than I thought. Before we get into talking about some of your insights and the process that you went through in reporting these stories that were released at the end of December, could you just walk us through some of your investigative project and what you found across the country? Well, it was actually the executive editor of the New York Times, Dean Beckay, who raised in a meeting that we were having among environmental reporters at the paper and editors. And he was saying, you know, we've written so many stories in 2018 about all of these regulatory proposals that the Trump administration has made at Interior and EPA in terms of rollbacks. And all these headlines, all these front-page stories, you know, the, the stories that have really resonated in the United States. But he said, I want to see the impact. 
you know, help me you know, identify, you know, where is this, where are the communities which we can actually see people who are, whose lives are changing um, and whose health is being affected by these policy choices in Washington. It's a little bit too abstract. And so we set out to uh, evaluate the dozens of different regulatory proposals and to, and to identify those that had been finalized um, and then to find communities where they were really manifesting themselves. And we also wanted to do it in a various medium. We wanted to do it in air and water and uh, in climate-related mat- matters and also in, in toxic chemicals and pesticides. And so, you know, that was a, a, a month or two of, of actually effort was the hardest part of this. One of the hardest parts was, was just, you know, going through all the regulatory changes and trying to figure out well, where is this, is this bubbling up in a way in which you can actually go and see it and touch it and, and, and feel it and talk to people who, who know about it. And so we ended up picking, you know, um, the most explicit uh, place that, that where the case was just right there, and, and you, all you had to do was sort of walk into it and it was, you know, was California, where, you know, Pruitt in March of 2017 had decided not to ban chlorpyrifos, a pesticide that is attributed with developmental disabilities in children and also, also causing illnesses among uh, farm workers. And so, you know, we went to California to identify the effects of the continued use of chlorpyrifos on the farm workers and on their children. And that was a, that's a, a toxic, you know, pesticide chemical issue. A second one had to do with climate change, and that was the methane releases that are going on in North Dakota as a result of a policy choice um, by the Department of Interior to repeal limits on on um, venting and flaring of methane from oil and gas wells that are developed on federal lands and on Indian lands. Another choice had to do with air pollution, and so we went to Texas to look at the major reinterpretation of the regional haze rule that between the Obama and the Trump administration that meant that nine different power plants in Texas were no longer going to have to install, uh, you know, scrubbers that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to reduce uh, sulfur dioxide emissions, which would reduce haze and also reduce, you know, uh, the, the, the harmful consequences, health consequences of, uh, of, of particulates that result from SO2 emissions. And finally, uh, we went to West Virginia, where the Clean Water Act was being uh, impacted by decisions that the Department of Interior and the EPA had made regarding uh, toxic metals that come out of coal-burning power plants and uh, um, toxic toxins that, that wash off of uh, coal mines because of a decision that the uh, Interior Department had made. So that's a lot of stuff, um, but the idea was to, to tell it through real people in real places, air, water, Climate and and pesticides and 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 that and and to make all of this kind of esoteric wonkish stuff into a story that people could really see the consequences. I think that that's really interesting that you highlighted that, especially because you visited some of these areas, right? Yeah, no, I went to I was in Houston and looking. This is a place where the regional haze rule changes in the regional. The interpretation of the regional haze rule means that. There are um, six uh, coal-burning power plants that will not have to install um, SO2 reduction equipment, i.e. scrubbers, and visited uh, Houston and also visited Arkansas, where there is a Class 1, um, a, a wild wilderness area, a Class 1 area that is impacted by the, um, the haze that comes from some of the Texas power plants. Um, so I was in Arkansas, I was in Texas, and then I was in North Dakota visiting 
on Fort Berthold where there has just been a tremendous increase in flaring and, and methane leaks uh, and venting as a result of um, oil and gas production there and a, that are impacted in part by a change in policy from the Department of Interior that eliminated um, limits on flaring and uh, venting. So did you actually get to experience seeing the haze? And I know you wrote about experiencing seeing and hearing the flares in North Dakota. Yeah, uh, the Texas one was a little bit harder to kind of nail down in a very hands-on way, and that's because the uh, while there has been a change in the approach from the uh, Trump administration in terms of regional haze, the uh, the actual scrubbers would not yet have been installed. Um, they they would be in the process of being installed right now at, at WA Parish, which is one of the plant the plants that I visited. Um, and also, and one of the points that we made in the in the Texas piece was that even though the Trump administration has changed the rules regarding regional haze and therefore is no longer requiring nine power plants to install, you know, SO2 reduction equipment, um, three of those nine have already shut down and just in the last year because of economic reasons. So, you know, even, even though Trump is trying to kind of reverse the, quote, war on coal, the economic uh, factors are in, are reducing um, SO2 emissions almost as rapidly as Obama intended to do because of, you know, not because of federal regulatory choices, but because of, you know, market forces. So in Texas, you, you could not actually see the impact of the change in the Trump policy because the, the economic forces were uh, resulting in change happening almost as rapidly as what Obama had anticipated. I mean, that, just to further the point is that... Um, the, the, what, what still matters in Texas is that there are six plants that, at, at least as of now, do not have um, closure plans that are not going to be required to install scrubbers as a result of a change. And that includes some of the biggest sources of SO2 in the United States. That, that was a really interesting part of the story for me to read because I could feel that in some sense it's difficult to write about the impact of SO2 on, on people's lives and also the impact given the, the regulatory issues that you talk about, that if Obama's regulations had been allowed to go forward, it didn't necessarily mean that scrubbers would be installed on those plants today and that you also have market forces at play which provide a different layer of complication. So I was wondering, which of the rollbacks, whether it's this one or perhaps another, you found most challenging to write about in terms of communicating the effects on public health and the environment? Well, the easiest ones are the, the, the starkest ones, where, for example, in California, you know, there is a, a pesticide that's still in use uh, that would otherwise have been banned. And so the, the health consequences of the use of that pesticide is, is explicit. So the harder ones, you know, as we were discussing, is the Texas situation or the West Virginia situation where, you know, the environment is really complicated. It, the, the, the regulatory actions are a single variable in a multifaceted, you know, environment that is, and so, you know, no single thing is, you know, the, the coal industry, coal mining is in massive decline in West Virginia. And so in that place, in West Virginia, we were looking at um, Clean Water Act impacts of some of the regulatory changes that the Trump administration has made. And we were looking at a, a particular river there and trying to assess, you know, how do the, the cumulative effect of, of a series of, of, of water-related um, regulatory decisions has had 
on the Kavanaugh River, and which goes right through Charleston. There, there are there was a decision about there was the effluent rule, which has been delayed by two years, and so therefore there is a massive coal burning power plant, the Amos plant, which has delayed the design and uh, implementation of of um, effluent of advanced biological wastewater treatment of the flue gas desulfurization wastewater that comes out of its um out of its uh, coal burning power plant there, which has toxic metals and, sel- and selenium and other contaminants. There is a rule from the Interior Department um, that was uh, intended to reduce uh, runoff from uh, old from you know existing and and even uh, semi closed coal mines that was called the um the stream protection rule, which was um, nullified by Congress. And then there was also a proposal that the EPA was considering that was going to um, uh, put restrictions on above-ground chemical storage tanks. um, And all three of those were in play in West Virginia, all of them potentially affecting um, water quality. But you couldn't just go to the river and, say, take a test of the river and say, oh, this water quality is worse today because of Trump than it was during Obama's era, because that's just not the case. There's there's just too many factors that go into determining the quality of the water in the Kavanaugh River. But it's true that all of those regulatory choices were coming into play in that one location, and that's why we chose that location. So I think it's interesting what you just said about the Kanawha River in West Virginia, because we see that in certain parts of the country, multiple rollbacks are having overlapping and even synergistic effects. And sometimes it's difficult to tease out the way that these different rollbacks are affecting specific resources like the the, the river in, in West Virginia. But there's this other element, which is not just those protections that might be in place that are being rolled back um, and changed specifically, but those other areas where action might have been taken under an administration that was more focused on environmental protection, where we might actually see some action, some push for that continued incremental progress over time um, that is just sort of falling by the wayside due to inaction. It seemed that that was also an element of some of the stories that you found in West Virginia. Is that the case? I think that's true. I mean, for example, if you look at the toxic chemical regulatory system, and we had anticipated everyone that after the um, major, um, you know, the legislation was passed in 2016, that we would be in a period of really aggressive regulatory action from the EPA in terms of approximately a thousand chemicals that have been on the market for decades, which the EPA itself admitted that it didn't really know the toxicity of them and that they may in fact be hazardous, and it was going to, you know, attempt to, you know, quickly move through them and and make, you know, decisions about limiting their use or perhaps banning them in some cases, like, you know, um, methylene chloride, TCE, um, NMP, um, um, uh, other chemicals that are used in, in from dry cleaners um, to paint removers um, and, and other settings. And there has been very slow action on that from the, from the EPA so far um, in terms of throttling through on some of the initial planned um, restrictions on those chemicals. So, I mean, if you, but if you step back and you think globally, my, my experience is in, in sort of thinking a lot about this and traveling to different parts of the country, is that what, what we can say so far is happening is that, you know, we're not going back to the river on fire in Ohio, I mean, or air pollution so bad that people are dying in New York City, you know, that's happened uh, several decades ago and in other places in the United States from just from, you know, intense ozone. 
we're, we're not, you know, the, what is changing is the pace of progress. And I don't think that we're in a period in which you're going to see actually a, a degradation of the environment in terms of air quality or water quality in the United States in, in, during Trump's era, or even probably in the aftermath of Trump's era. But the pace at which we have been improving air quality and water quality in the United States I think we can already identify some some parts of that pace that has the has declined, um, the, the, and 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 you can attribute that in part to regulatory choices, and that's that's consequential, and that we have expectations, the American public, that we live in a in a, in a in a country where we are making progress in terms of cleaning our air and water. We're approaching the 50 year anniversary of the EPA. It's been it's an incredible movement that's you know accomplished so much. And similarly with climate change, I mean, you know, there are economic forces that are that are driving um, decisions, and particularly relating to coal burning power plants, that continue to. Although there was a one year apparent, you know, uptick in, in CO two production in the United States because of uh, weather conditions and, and industrial production, um, but you know, I think the pace of progress on climate change is the pace of progress is going to slow uh, in the United States because of because of policy choices. So that's. If you really want to look at what is the, the consequences of Trump that are becoming apparent now, it's that the pace of progress on confronting environmental challenges is slowing. And I think we can now document that. Absolutely. And indeed, I, I believe that was a point in the piece that ran after the collection uh, at the end of December. There was a piece in, in the Times about the takeaways from your investigation. And one of them was about the slowing of the pace of progress. And I think another one was about the tension that people experience when they work for or financially benefit from an industry that's also impacting the public health and the environment in their community. And that really came into sharp focus in Fort Berthold. Um, but it was a tension that seemed to run throughout your investigation and into all of the places that you went. And I was curious if you could just talk about this tension and how this came up in interviews for people? I encounter that frequently as a reporter. Those of us that live on the east or the west coast, I mean, we, you know, we sort of, we presume that, that, that everyone in the United States is so committed to, you know, reducing air and water pollution that, that but in fact, you know, when you travel to communities where the, the, the source of the pollution is also the major employer, it, it becomes much more complicated, and, and there is a intense division. And so, for example, in, in North Dakota, um, where oil and gas is is the source of 90% of the local government revenues and is building new schools and building a new government center and new roads and uh, even a powwow you know, complex for the annual uh, cultural celebration for the Indian uh, reservation there, uh, that the, the oil and gas you know, industry is, is, is the source of... of of wealth and, and happiness in a way, um, and and it is also producing massive amounts of of, um, of flaring and methane releases, and so it's also hurting the same community. And but the the calculus is is complicated when it is the the source of your bread and also potentially you know your a health threat. So uh, you know it, I found that to be the case in Texas and in West Virginia. It's when I visited there. I didn't visit it for this story, but in, in California, I mean. In the agricultural communities, um, there are, you know, the, in the central parts of, of California, where which produce an, an incredible, almost more than a third of all the fruits and vegetables and nuts in the United States are produced there in the Central Valley of, of California. And 
and it is a massive employer, and and uh, and at the same time, in order to grow all of that fruits and vegetables, um, they need they use pesticides, and those pesticides have health consequences at sometimes. Yeah, I think I was also struck by the fact that this is often a very stark trade-off between jobs or environmental protection, right? It's often painted that way uh, by people maybe on one side of the argument or the other, that having a healthy environment is truly the top priority or that having a job is truly the top priority and we can't have both. But you seem to be able to tease out that nuance in your reporting where we got a glimpse of people's yearning to have both. Yeah, I think that that's a, a false a presumption that you you can't have both. I think though that the people that live in those communities whose jobs depend on them, they they're in a mindset. Whereas if they they fear that if their employer is forced to increase spending on environmental controls, then that may mean that they will there will be fewer jobs, and that might be the, the end of their job. Um, but you know, for example. You know, there are places in the United States that have much tighter restrictions on flaring, and they're still producing oil and gas. And, and there, there's a choice that is being made in North Dakota to continue to drill new oil wells because the oil is producing a profitable, you know, uh, material, which is the oil, which is much more valuable than the gas. And they are less concerned about, you know, having the pipelines to actually transport the gas off of the, the well pads and so they're simply burning the gas. And so there is far from sufficient pipeline capacity. Um, but they are collecting the oil because they're making money on it. The gas is worth such, such a little amount that they're, they're just burning it off. And now that's an economic choice as much as it is, you know, the environmental consequences come because of an economic choice. And if the, if the federal government or the state government were to say, I'm sorry, you could not increase your production until you have the capacity to capture more of that you know that methane before instead of just burning it off, then there would be a then that would be the that would be the requirement. Um, but the Interior Department has eliminated that requirement, and that was a, a policy choice that the Trump administration made. Are there other rollbacks or other parts of the country that you considered covering for this story that you can share with us? I mean, I think that the the other you know side of the coin here is enforcement. And we, we've been talking, you know, in this conversation entirely about, you know, the, the regulatory choices. I mean, but EPA has both its policy, you know, its regulatory creating and, and regulatory writing uh, function, and then also its enforcement function. And I think the single, you know, biggest thing that probably that is happening so far, and we separately documented this, Danielle Ivory and I did, um, was the massive reduction in enforcement action by the EPA, both in criminal and civil not only in terms of the amount of fines that they are um, imposing, but also um, what they call injunctive relief, which is the, uh, the, pen- the, the amount that companies agree to pay to fix the, the cause of the environmental violation, the upgrades to their air pollution controls, the upgrades to their wastewater treatment, uh, and a huge decline in, um, in, in terms of injunctive relief and penalties, uh, fines, uh, and, you know, the EPA would say, well, this is because they are, you know, they're pursuing this philosophy of cooperative federalism, which, which they're pushing down the, the authority to the state officials. Um, but I think that, that, we'll, that one of the things I want to examine more is, is just well, what does cooperative federalism really mean? And, and is, it, is it mean that the states are actually stepping up, or is it mean that there's just less enforcement? My impression is that there's less enforcement. And 
And that's, that's a much faster, the impact of, of a decline in enforcement is faster than the impact of a change in regulatory policy. Both of those things are happening. Um, and, and if you were to, if I were to say, well, what else do I really want to look into? I want to look into more of what is the impact of the massive decline in enforcement. Um, what, what impact is that having in terms of environmental quality in the United States? So you wrote a series of articles in 2014 about the lobbying of state attorneys general, one of which focused on Scott Pruitt, who was the attorney general of Oklahoma at the time and detailed his close ties with the oil and gas industry as he fought federal environmental regulations during the Obama administration. After Pruitt became EPA administrator, you investigated and wrote about Pruitt and the EPA's treatment of chlorpyrifos, which is featured in in this story, and the chemical industry and science in a series of several articles throughout 2017. Could you talk us through the evolution in your work over the last few years? Yeah, I was really struck by the extent to which uh, both at Interior and EPA that the the people who were the regulated um, became the regulators. And that, for example, with, with, with respect to um, toxins and pesticides, a uh, senior executive at the American Chemistry Council, Nancy Beck, who was, you know, one of the top people for, you know, a $600 billion a year chemical industry in terms of intervening with the EPA to try to stop um, toxic chemical regulations that would limit, you know, the sale of certain chemicals in the United States. She was like the leading uh, party that was documenting why the industry wanted the EPA to, to you know, ease up its restrictions. And then suddenly, you know, a few weeks after she is, you know, submitting comments to try to stop the regulations of certain chemicals, she is actually helping run the program that's deciding on which chemicals should be regulated. Uh, and, and, and not only that, but then the EPA was granting her, you know, special ethics waivers to allow her to be, continue to interact with the, with the same company, you know, the trade association she left and to be actually, she was able to participate in litigation that was suing the EPA over input she'd had from the private sector, which is, it's just sort of crazy. Why are there conflict of interest rules if a person can get a waiver like that? And so I was fascinated by this revolving door and just how, and, you know, Nancy Beck is just one person, and there were there was multiple examples of this across the EPA and Interior. I mean, if you think about the fact that now the acting administrator of the EPA was a, you know, a former coal lobbyist, the acting uh, uh, cabinet member from Interior is a, is a former oil industry lobbyist, um, you know, across this administration, the the regulated have now become the regulators. And so, you know, it was my uh, kind of uh, fixation to kind of document the extent to which they are using their positions now that they have to to benefit their the, the interests of the clients that they want to represent it. I mean, if you just look at, at um, you know, Bill Wareham, who runs the uh, air and radiation policy shop at the EPA, is one of the most important positions at the agency. Uh, I mean, he essentially walked out of his, his client list of dozens of uh, pieces of litigation involving the EPA regarding, you know, new source review that has to do with air pollution from coal-burning power plants and other um, air polluters. And then he was flipping the policies that directly matched what his goals were um, as, a, as, a, as an industry lawyer within a matter of weeks. And that's happening, you know, in, in places across the administration, and it's really fascinating. And for, as a reporter, I think it's a critical thing that we play a role of, 
you know, it, you may think it's a great thing, you may think it's a bad thing, but at a minimum, those actions need to be public, and we need we have a role as reporters to bring transparency to that. It's it's not the Mueller investigation, it's not Russia, it's not the stuff that's grabbing all the headlines for most people, but this is really important stuff, and, and I'm glad that the New York Times is letting me help document that. Yeah, it's certainly been a big focus of our work here, looking at how these specific players, but also the overall mission of the Trump administration has affected the way that these agencies are functioning and the way that they interpret uh, their mission as the Environmental Protection Agency, for example, and how that in many ways departs from prior agency practice uh, in previous administrations. So we are glad that you are uh, focused in on these issues. So what would you say are some of the takeaways then from your last few years of reporting on these issues? Uh, I think that, um, you know, that, you know, what re- the regulatory um, decisions are, are so consequential to society. And I think that we, we tend to focus on the president and Congress. And, you know, of course, Congress has to pass the laws and the president has to sign them. But, you know, the regulatory choices that individual agencies make um, are, you know, are, are just so important. And I, you know, I don't think that I fully appreciate it just the, the consequences of those choices. And, um, and, and, the, and the process is, is very laborious. And we're, we're really entering a period in the third year of the administration where this is like the make-or-break moment for them. I mean, the, the, um, the Clean Power Plan repeal and its replacement, the waters of the U.S., um, the CAFE standard in terms of uh, you know, emissions from automobiles, those three rules are on the table in 2019. And the rewriting of those rules is going to have to be executed this this year, by and large, um, and uh, and so I, I guess I, I just think that that you know that's what we have to keep our eyes on, and then it's going to switch to the courts, you know, in terms of you know can they defend those those final decisions in the courts, and and the Trump administration is moving as aggressively as it can to remake the federal court system, um, both the appeals court and the Supreme Court and the federal district courts, um, so that it it can you know so. I guess you know these these choices that are being made are are it's a very slow moving process, um, but it, but it's a very consequential one and and it it, it takes a, quite a commitment to kind of see these things through and I'm I'm glad that I work at an institution that's that's you know willing to and make the investment to help you know the public as as Harvard is doing with your tracker and your regulatory tracker and other uh, things that you guys are doing, but just. You know, if if, it, if we aren't following it, then then people just aren't aware of it. Not just the New York Times, but if there aren't people tracking it, then it, it's hard for the public to really kind of be aware of what's happening. Right, right. And to just read one headline in isolation is not enough either. But to, as you described, try to unveil this huge web. Um, this huge system that's at work, the way that all these different moving pieces play a part. Um, Like you said, with the finalization of rules comes the moment where we will see litigation and the challenges of these rules heading into the court system, which is increasingly becoming full of justices that have been approved during this, or judges and and now justices that have been confirmed during this administration. So I think it's important to, uh, as you know, follow things all the way through and try to look at these webs of, of influence. So we are 
grateful for for your work and we will i'm sure alongside you be posted looking um, at all of the changes that are supposed to be coming down the pipeline over the next year is there anything else that you wanted to add that i didn't ask you about that we didn't get to in our time here no, I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, it's important that the public, you know, continue to be interested in this topic. And I, uh, there's so many, there's so much competition for the kind of eyeballs nowadays. Um, and I, you know, some, sometimes I'm disappointed with the, the amount of readers that we get for some of these stories versus, you know, the latest uh, wrinkle in the Mueller investigation, and which just, you know, it draws such, you know, which, you know, what are what are the consequences of that relative to, you know, environmental choices that, that are being made? Um, but the, the interest level, it's it just, is, I just think it's important that the public stay focused on this and not be distracted by, you know, the, the, the roiling headlines on things that, that, are, that, are, that are equally important in a way, but, but, you know, perhaps not as directly consequential to their lives. Right. feels a lot of times like we're living in a constant churn of all of these different headlines and scandals, and it can be hard to stay focused on some of these slower moving, but yet very powerful and sometimes insidious things that are also happening somewhat behind the scenes. So. Yeah, it's probably intentional. I mean, all like the border wall, you know, it's like how much is that directly going to impact the lives of most Americans? You know, but how much time have we spent talking and focusing and, and distracted by it for, for, you know, for months or for, in fact, years? Um, and so it's, it, that's one of the challenges is, is to, you know, is to make sure that there's, that people are sufficiently interested in this topic. But that puts greater pressure on us as reporters to find ways to tell these stories in a way that will interest readers um, so that they want to read them. And they're not just dry regulatory pieces, but they, they have you know, they play out in real places. Yeah, and I think that that has been the tremendous success of this piece here at the end of of December, which brought us such compelling portraits of people whose everyday realities are being affected by these regulatory changes happening out in Washington, that to read about them um, seem rather dry, but are really having an effect um, on, the, on the way that people live. And so congratulations on that. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for the work you guys are doing. I'm, your tracker and, and other work you do is really helpful for us as well to, to keep, keep ahead of what's happening. Good. Glad to hear that. All right. Well, I think we will end things there. Thank you again, Eric. Okay. It's been a pleasure to have you as our guest. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's stay in touch, and uh, thank you for, for inviting me to participate.